Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Hounsom. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Megan Lee. The story of silence is based on a 13th century French chivalric romance, distinguished by its prominent discussion of gender. Reimagined by Alex Myers, I found it to be a compelling exploration of transgender identity in an oppressively binary medieval society. At its heart, Silence's story is very much a chivalric romance, full of drama, dragons, magic and music. What power, we ask, lingers in this ancient genre, and are its larger-than-life knights, damsels and darings still relevant today? Is there anything they can tell us that impacts modern discussions of gender identity? So tonight, we're really lucky to have the author Alex Myers here to join us and to talk about a bit about chivalric romance. Um, so if you'd like to introduce yourself to our listeners, Alex. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I am currently in the fine state of Maine in the northeastern United States. Um, I am an English teacher uh, at the high school level here. So that's uh, 14 through 18 year olds. Um, that's mostly what I do with my time. So I'm now enjoying my summer vacation. Um, and in and around my teaching job, I write. Um, I mostly write uh, novels and occasionally write some essays on uh, gender. And my three novels that are out to date. Uh, the first one is Revolutionary was my debut, and that follows, <clears throat> excuse me, that follows the story of my ancestor, Deborah Sampson, who in uh, 1782 ran away from home, uh, disguised herself as a man, and fought um, in the American Revolutionary War. Do you call that the War of Yankee Aggression over there in, in England? Is that is that what it's called? Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> and uh, so that uh, that's uh, the the debut. The second novel I wrote is uh, Continental Divide, um, which is set in 1992 and follows the story of a transgender guy um, from New England who wants to go out west um, and confront sort of the American myth of masculinity um, and and. It's loosely based on a summer I spent out in Wyoming uh, when I was in college. And now uh, the story of silence. I am also, I should say, myself a transgender guy. I came out in uh, 1995 and uh, transitioned um, after growing up as a girl and kind of maturing as a young woman. I started my life as a trans person in, in 1995, which was fairly early. Um, and I've been a real advocate and educator, um, speaker and writer on the topic of gender ever since then, in particular working with um, schools to make, um, to make educational settings more gender inclusive and supportive for transgender students. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you. Um, but I was just going to say, before we go into chivalric romance, that is an amazing story about your ancestor. <laughs> How did you discover that? She is so cool. Um, so my had a wonderful grandmother um, who was a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution, and uh, she had done all the genealogical research. And I can remember being a little like four and five year old girl and going on Patriots Day, which is April eighteenth, um, down to my grandmother's house. She lived outside of Boston, and we'd go to the battles, the reenactments of the battles of Lexington and, and Concord, the shot heard around the world, um, and. My grandmother would tell me this story and she would say, I don't know if she 
saw something in me or just thought it was an interesting story herself, but she would tell me this story of Deborah and how she you know, saw the boys marching out to be soldiers and was really jealous and wanted to join them. And at four years old, I remember thinking like, oh my God, that's what I want. Like I was so jealous of the boys, what they got away with. And um, it was just a story that I always kind of knew in the back of my head. And I wanted to um, encounter it as an adult and as a trans person and kind of in the way that historical fiction can exhume the past and bring up Deborah's ghost and really get to ask it, who were you? What did it feel like to live um, in, in your time and in your body and, and in your identity? So it was a lot of fun. So let's talk a bit about uh, tonight's topic, um, chivalric romance, but we call it romance. Um, but obviously it doesn't just mean a love story. It That's the kind of terminology we use today so like what actually is a medieval or a chivalric romance as you interpret it i think it's a story that involves a, a journey um and and ideally a journey that is both uh internal and external so there's uh the classic uh there's got to be um the 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 knee again usually um both internal and external to prove oneself or to vanquish a monster or to uh, you know, see some wonderful thing, right? There has to be some goal out there. And then there have to be obstacles to that goal. Um, and then there has to be a, a struggle. Um, and ideally in a, in a chivalric romance, the struggle should test some degree of the hero's um, morality, um, ethics, um, chivalry, um, but also their sense of who they are and how they live in the, in the world. And whatever monster um, they confront should have should speak to some inner part of themselves as well as present that external uh, challenge. So that would be my nutshell definition of it. Well, that's quite interesting because you didn't really mention romance in that. <laughs> so <laughs> kind of because I mean that's kind of what I was looking at that it is a story of someone like you say going out on a journey I I would say quest and I can't figure out why that makes a difference to me and whether it's a quest mm-hmm. or a journey I suppose because there's something magical at the end of it so that's kind of how I always think about it whether it's the holy grail or magical answer or, or whatever but I mean what about the romance element of it I I tended to find that there was always a woman in the sort of goal area it was like I'm doing all these wonderful things and I'm spurred on by love and it is fantastic and I'm spurred on by purity of spirit as well but also by a woman do you find that in the chivalric romance you read or is it just that I've been reading all the wrong stuff (laughs) um I think you do and oddly the woman is usually um unattainable or shouldn't be obtained in some way um or is a source of a temptation Right. And um, and so there's a there's a real troubling both of gender and of love. And we get this idea of courtly love, um, love that is supposed to happen at a distance, love that is um, forbidden, um, love that has to be denied. I think that's often um, an element. But I I don't think it always is. Um, And we certainly have a genre of romance within the Arthurian legends that feature knights who are um, resolved to be virgins. And sometimes they are, they are tempted, but sometimes they go out on, on quests, um, which I think is definitely an accurate word um, that involve uh, chivalry, but, but no romance. I was, um, when I was reading up about this um, topic, because I was woefully underread in this area, I have to admit, 
I came across something that was talking about how a lot of chivalric romance and, and the courtly love aspect was partly to do with having or a lot of marriages being arranged marriages and nothing to do with love. And while it was, you know, you, you still weren't supposed to cheat sexually on your husband or wife, there was this idea of courtly love that you could actually have a romance, a an emotional love affair. Um, as long as it didn't get physical, it was okay. But I what I really, really loved about this um thing was it was talking about how it was often knights or lower vassals falling in love with a married noblewoman and that love for her was meant to sort of civilize them and and meant to rub off on them and and these these women would be a good influence which I quite liked because usually that's not the case it's usually the woman's the femme fatale she's going to you know tempt him she's eve she's the devil whatever um I thought that was quite nice to say that uh, the woman was going to be a good influence yeah you can find those um and I I think there's a there's a range of women. Um, it's not a huge range, but, but that is, that is one example of the role a woman can play. She can be also just an object, um, and, and sort of a, almost sort of a distant token figure in the background. The, the quest is for her or the, you know, the, the monster has, has possession of her and she must be reobtained. Um, and, and, but she can absolutely be, um, a symbol of purity that is a, a, a guiding light in a sense. Yeah. Well, it was interesting that Megan was talking about, obviously, the lady being the one that civilizes the lower vassal. But I think my favorite story ever was, um, I don't know if this counts as chivalric romance, I think maybe it postdates it a bit, but Alex will be able to tell me, is um, the loathly lady sort of motif, where Sir, Sir Gawain and is it Lady Ragnall, I think is it, where he goes out to try and help his king uncover a question and as part of that Gawain has to agree to marry an ugly hag and Mm. she basically (laughs) comes and sits down at the dinner table and you've got all these wonderful social conventions like a lady is supposed to be refined and elegant or whatever and she basically sits there and stuffs her face and belches and scratches her ass and all these kind of things and almost drags him down so she's the complete inversion but then later on she goes to turn out to be beautiful anyway and I just I don't know that I really like that because it was so different to the chivalric romances that I read where it was a highborn lady. She was the epitome. She was wonderful. And yet you got this character who just really blew me away as something so different in that genre. Yeah. Women in disguise, like women, um, whether they're fairy women or high class women disguised as low or vice versa or ugly disguised as beautiful. There are a lot of um, deceptions and disguise. Again, this idea of like testing, who are you really when you don't when you don't know the the truth? um, Will you still behave the way you're supposed to? Um, And the the, the loathsome lady, there's some funny ones later on where knights um force each other to to duel for a woman that neither one of them wants and sort of the the loser gets saddled with her um so yeah women are play a a wide range of what i now view as peculiar and at at best humorous uh, roles there was a perfect moment for me to bring up star trek right then but i'm gonna i'm gonna let it slide (laughs) just i'm gonna let it slide are you sure yeah i want to know now Come on, you're not going to sulk for the rest of the evening. <laughs> it's fine because I've also like got a couple of other points that I can bring up later with it. 
<laughs> it was just uh, it was interesting when you're talking about how um, you know uh, knights fighting over a woman that they don't even want, and it reminded me of uh, the episode of Star Trek original series where uh, basically uh, Spock gets his seven year itch and heads back to Vulcan because it's the the one time in seven years that he's horny, and his betrothed basically uh, insists that. Spock fight um, her her chosen champion in order to win her hand because she doesn't actually want Spock. But instead of actually choosing him to fight the man that she does love, she makes <laughs> makes him fight Kirk I was instead. Say, and it's like, Kirk that she makes. Him. Yeah. <laughs> so she makes makes them fight supposedly to the death because the the point being that if Spock wins he would have killed his friend rather than the man that she actually wants to marry. And then he won't want her anyway because she's rejected him. So she wins either way. So that's sort of where I, <laughs> what that reminded me of. See, I told you I can get Star Trek into anything. Well done. I think it just goes to show exactly how pervasive this quest motif and the idea of a, of a damsel who needs saving or who is going to test a man's fill in the blank, whether that's masculinity or virtue or faithfulness. Um, it's, it is, it is a trope that has lasted for a very long time. Well, since we're talking uh, a little bit about, um, women as characters and women as consumers of these narratives, um, let's talk a little bit about the roles that women inhabit in these stories. Um, I mean, we, would probably see them and we do see them as quite restrictive, um, particularly by today's standards. And there's lots of repetition. Um, there's lots of women being um, kind of constrained to total opposites. Like you either have them as, um, in fact, actually, you have a great example of one in Story of Silence, the Queen. Is it, you, how do you mm-hmm. say her name? Euphemie. Euphemie? Yeah, Euphemie. Yeah, who is... <laughs> she's pretty bad (laughs) yeah real temptress she is and in the original i'll just say a character i didn't put um fully into the reinterpretation is silence's um uh mother who's the exact opposite and they're meant to be um contrasts of each other ah well there we go that's that's the other one so they do seem to have this um these this kind of opposite where you have you know one woman is particularly um, clear cut and chaste and good. And the other one exemplifies all that men believe to be the worst things about women. Um, I mean, is this, um, is this genre really, I mean, does it portray women ever in a good light? Uh, or is it always going to be very unrealistic and larger than life? Yeah. So I think they, they do get portrayed in a, in a, quote unquote good light but that to be good is is almost impossible mm-hmm. um and i think this is where you have to think back to the early middle ages as as doing something different with gender than we do now um and if 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 we think of gender now as sort of um an expression of self um if we think of gender back in the early middle ages as really a question of um are you a good person or not uh, that's very different. Um, there's no way really to be a good woman. Um, to be good is to be masculine. 
and and really women end up just um, just being defective men, um, being non-entities, not being people really at all. Or if they want to be good, um, they have to they have to be. It's impossible to to do so as a woman, right? They're, they have to kind of become a man in a sense uh, to be judged. Uh, fully good within society, and and I think that's why the story of silence intrigued me. You know, his his mother um, is is very a very good woman, um, and even even she is a little bit Im- imperfect because she agrees to the deception that silence undergoes. And the, the queen is absolutely the pits. She's the worst. Um, she's hypersexual. She's deceitful. She's unfaithful repeatedly, um, and she's. Um, She's another liar. She's also, of course, beautiful and powerful. So you said she was unfaithful. In your novel, then, have you made the sort of replicated the idea that faithfulness is something that is definitely worthy, whether it's in men or women? Because obviously, I know we're jumping ahead a bit in the questions, but one of the things that we noticed was that chastity was one of the things that men had to have as well. You know, if you were a knight and you were unchaste, then, whoa, no, you weren't you weren't chivalrous. Um, and there's obviously, is it, oh, there's one of the quests that Arthur and his knights go on and one or more of them fail because they get seduced and all this kind of thing. So, in your world that you've created with silence, is it a case that faithfulness is another key thing that's a virtue in your world, or have you taken a, a slightly different approach to it? I think um, silence's closest friend when he's a knight um, is another young knight, and they kind of come of age together. And the idea that I had with with that was that a young man should be faithful but he should be faithful once he's settled on the woman that he wants to be faithful with, right? That there's a sort of sowing of the wild oats as it were, that um, is tolerable in a, in a young man. Absolutely not in a young woman though. Um, That, uh, and then again, I think within the chivalric world, men get away with being unfaithful um, as long as they do it quote unquote with the right sort of woman. So to visit a lower class woman or a, a, a prostitute or to, perhaps even in the situation of the spoils of war would be regarded as not really being unfaithful because you don't love those people. You're not engaging in a, in a, in a romantic relationship with them. And I, I wanted to highlight that double standard that they can still think of themselves. Men, these men can still think of themselves as virtuous, even while pursuing those kinds of uh, behaviors. That is so sneaky. I've not I've not picked up on that, but I did a lot of Mishavalric reading when I was quite young, so I'm wondering if a lot of my tales were kind of, you know, sanitized for my age group. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I mean, I think the, the 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 biggest one that probably doesn't get can't be completely sanitized is uh, Lancelot and Guinevere. Um, but even the story of Arthur's conception um, and how Merlin puts a, um, an illusion um, around the, the Uther Pendragon so that he can go in and seduce Igran. I don't know the pronunciation at all. Um, Igraine. Um, and she, she thinks she's sleeping with her husband because Uther now looks magically like her husband. And he, Uther knows what he's doing and he sleeps with her um, and she conceives by him. Um, and, and so she thinks she's remaining faithful Uther knows that he's not, and it, it's very complicated what what men can do, um, and and whether we would judge her to have, have done wrong wrong or not. 
Was that sanitized out of your version of, uh, of Arthur that you heard? <laughs> um, I think I came to that one later. I mean, one of the one of the adaptations I really loved when I was a kid was the one with Sam Neill as Merlin. Um, and I really like that because it just had some fantastic characters in it, fantastic actors. I mean, I could watch Sam Neill basically just read the phone book because he's such, <laughs> such an amazing person, such, you know, gravitas on the screen. But I remember from that in particular and from other things that I've read since that Morgan is his half-sister, isn't she? Is that right? Um, and she is the daughter of Igraine and whoever her actual husband was. Is that correct? Gorlois, yes. Oh, yeah. Um, Which I always thought it was really interesting because certainly it was played up in the adaptation I saw with Sam Neill, but it is also vaguely present in some of the other books I've read. This idea that you've got the, the sort of illegitimate because like you say it's kind of weird is he illegitimate is he not he really basically is it was all trickery but he's supposed to be the hero and it always sort of overshadows him this idea of the past when he his conception was deceitful and it was wrong and I know certainly in the Sam Neill version they were very favorable to Morgan Le Fay because she was the honest and genuine heir and yet she kind of gets overshadowed by Arthur and they kind of made that as a way for her to turn bad which I thought was an interesting way of looking at it a modern adaptation because like we were saying about unfaithfulness being a key to badness within stories but also women you know sort of being objects oh it was just I really loved the way they, they put it all together um I'm not quite sure where I was going with that I just wanted to to rave about the Sam Neill version <laughs> yeah Morgan is handled very differently even in in the some of the original and um early source material, you know, where she comes from, what her character is, whether she's inherently bad, whether she's in love with Arthur, um, and, and Arthur's own acknowledgement of his, um, illegitimate origins. Cause of course he was illegitimately conceived, but it had to be that way, right? This was all prophesied and ordained. And so there's a, a rightness to that wrongness that, uh, that's a, to me is, um, is, it just undermines the very idea of, of, of virtue. I mean, what do you think of Morgan Le Fay as a character? Because she's obviously one that many people have rewritten throughout the years. And she is a powerful woman. And sometimes she's seen as powerful and capricious. Sometimes she's seen as powerful and wounded. I mean, I know that we're sort of straying a little bit away from chivalric romance, but as one of the main female characters within this genre, I wondered what you thought about her and how you thought you would present her if you had to do it, you know, which of these many interpretations would you pick? I would just love to uh, explore her relationship with magic. I think that's what has, has always interested in me. Um, where do women get power, right? That's the question that, that interests me. They're, they are living in a society which does, has done everything to disempower them. And very few of them have the chance that silence has to become a knight and to seek power through violence um, and through uh, the sort of hierarchy that's established for men. So if you aren't going to do that, how are you going to gain power? Well, you can be a queen and you can rule through your son or rule through your husband. That to me is uninteresting. Um, and I think in some, in some cases, Morgan does that with uh, Mordred, right? She sort of manipulates him to act on her behalf or manipulates other men to do her bidding. Um, but to me, the, the magic element is a, is a much more interesting one. Um, and, and what magic permits um, and how magic is different when it's wielded by somebody like Morgan or um, Vivian um, than it is in uh, Merlin. Because if my memory serves me correctly, isn't 
Mordred, the son of Morgan and Arthur, also through deception. Is that right? Yes, in many versions. I think there are some places where he has an alternate origin, but I believe that's the most common one. Yeah, because then you've got almost history repeating itself. And it's it's back to this idea, I think, of the Guinevere and Lancelot. And no matter how you spin Guinevere and Lancelot, they're always going to end up sad and a tragedy because someone's going to get hurt. And I always kind of felt the same with Arthur, that this deception and this unfaithfulness at his birth just follows him all the way throughout and ends up with him having his own incestuous son. It's just, I always found that with chivalric romance. It was wonderful and it was beautiful and it was so dark. Mm -hmm. It is very dark and there's lots of unexplained um, violence and and just weirdness to it. You know, Gawain and the the Green Knight and the fact that Gawain kind of wins and loses simultaneously, right? He's, he forever bears a mark of shame. It's a very strange story about the, the perfect knight who really can't be perfect. And I tried in, in, in the story of silence, um, I tried to figure out, um, what silence would think of these stories, whether, whether he would find them dark or mystifying. And he reads one, um, somewhat illicitly that his, um, the woman who's raising him has, has kind of kept from him because she thinks it's a little too racy, uh, the, the knight and the sword where, uh, you know, uh, one of Arthur's knights goes out on the road and, um, is told you can sleep in the same bed as my daughter, but you can't touch her. And of course he does. And then a sword comes down and tries to cut him. And and silence is just baffled by this, um, not understanding sort of uh, romance and sexuality because he reads it when he's very young. And I think that's a common experience for a lot of readers. You know, they might get a young readers, they might get a, movie version or a cartoon version of of arthur and think this is exciting and knights and and uh you know jousts and queens and all that and then they pick up the original and it's like what the hell is this <laughs> alex was talking about how women um came by power um in these stories and i thought that was really interesting um because when we were preparing notes for this we made a distinction between um you know women who are the stereotypical damsel in distress and women who are powerful or have somehow, you know, and particularly the link between women who are powerful and beautiful, which is really quite unusual combination. Generally, it's not, you know, ones that necessarily go together, or if they do, it's all, you know, and it's an illusion. So um, I think it, Charlotte, it was you who asked about the endings of these women's stories um, which I thought that was that was quite interesting. Like whether, you know, are they presented differently? Do they have different endings? Uh, powerful women to the women who have been possibly disenfranchised um, in their own stories. I mean, I think it depends on who is telling the story, right? Uh, as to what ending the women get, and the the, the ending of um, silence to me was the most intriguing one. So can I give a spoiler warning here? If you don't want to know the ending, don't listen. Um, so in the original, um, the the narrator of the story, the purported author is this Heldress of Cornwall. And he, at the, at the very end of the story, silence is of course revealed to be a woman in front of the entire court. Um, he or she or they is um, stripped naked. Um, the court is in awe of Silence's beauty. And the king, um, King Evan, says, oh my gosh, you're so beautiful, I have to marry you. And Silence becomes a queen. And it's 
I think red is an incredibly happy ending. Like, ta-da, silence is, the truth of silence is revealed and, and she is restored to her womanhood. And hey, on top of that becomes a queen. And it almost made me weep with how sad that was um, when I got to the original ending. But that is usually what happens to any sort of powerful woman. They are literally put into their place. They are um, recontained within whatever sphere they're supposed to be, whether that's daughter or wife or queen or um, servant, you know, that, they're, that, that the sort of normalcy is restored. Um, and I, I really wanted to trouble that um, in my retelling and to suggest that the, the narrator, the author, Heldris, had to do that to protect silence. Um, and, but the truth was something, um, quite different from that because I, I can't stand that. And to go back to my ancestor, Deborah, the same thing happened to her. Um, you know, at the end of her service in the war, um, she was marched back at gunpoint, um, to her family and told to resume, um, her, her regular life. And she married and she had children. And I don't think she was particularly happy doing that. But that's the story. That's the Mulan kind of story. Um, you, it's fine to play around for a little bit as a powerful woman, um, but you better get back to where you belong. I found that ending so interesting that you did that because when I read that moment, you know, like, because you have, um, you know, Hell just recounting it, it is so sad and it is so depressing. And it, I, it felt like such a refutation of everything that silence is and everything they have striven for throughout the entire book. So it's really powerful that, that, that you had that framing narrative there because it does play with the idea of like, what are stories and who is allowed to tell somebody else's story? Um, and how this story has kind of come down to us through hundreds of years. Um, so that's it's such an in, it's just really interesting distinction how we you know you have Silence's voice, um, who it's, and they're such a loud character all the way throughout. And then they have this kind of little you know there's a little box that they get put in at the end and repackaged, and that's you know in the kind of how a, a true courtly love style chivalric romance should finish you know that we have a beautiful queen you know marrying a king and it, it's just like but it's so false um and I just thought it, it really shows up the kind of artifice um that kind of inhabits this entire genre it, it feels like very often you're reading a kind of it's it's like a gilded cage it's like a beautiful precious box but actually it's all kind of facade on the outside. Nothing is really as it seems. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and particularly for, for women, I think the men have some constraints, um, but the, the, the female characters are, are utterly, um, there's a very narrow sphere in which they can operate um, and, and have their tales be acceptable. And it always intrigues me too, in, in sort of the history of the manuscripts, a lot of these tales survive to us, bound into, um, you know, booklets that were special made for noble women. Um, it was mostly noble women who were reading them and, or having them read to them um, and who, who would request, oh, make me a storybook with these tales in it. Um, and so women liked these tales, or uh, at least um, they were the, the, the popular consumers of them. So I wonder what they made of them and whether they recognized the conventions of the narrative um, and, and chafed at it as well. 
it sounds like these stories kind of have that that sitcom approach to it where you have whatever starts as the status quo at the beginning, no matter what happens in between, it ends with the status quo. But is that only the case for the female characters? Do the men actually get to to grow and change over the course of the narrative? I think the men are allowed a, a larger degree of accomplishment or, or self-discovery, and they might um, – they might end in a different place. They might begin um, a story out of favor or needing to prove themselves and then through the course of their quest, win that place. Um, but again, women have no place to compete. They can fall. They can, um, they can lose status, but, um, but it's, it's quite rare uh, for them to have that same opportunity to, to gain something. So I really liked the discussion we had earlier about the role of women um, within chivalric romance and particularly thinking about Morgan and thinking about her in particular and other people around her. I think there's a lot of magic in chivalric romance. You've obviously got, is it the five-pointed star of friendship, generosity, chastity, courtesy and piety, which is obviously part of the chivalric code. But there's always a little bit of magic in it. Um, And I was wondering about Merlin, as obviously the main character that everybody knows about, and about Morgan, about the Lady of the Lake, who is clearly a lady, but whenever I've seen her portrayed, she seems to be, you know, quite androgynous. Um, And obviously, we've then got your story of silence. So taking that all into consideration, I wondered if you thought there was a, a link either historically or culturally between magic and genders or non-binary genders. Absolutely. I mean, I think of gender as really in a container and a way that we socially explain power. Um, and uh, magic is outside of that system of gender, um, but is a source of power. So that's why I think a lot of magicians are not fitting into gender stereotypes. You know, um, in most stories, Merlin does not get a love interest. In most stories, Merlin also doesn't get a sword. Um, he exists and wields a different sort of power that is in a sense non-gendered or, or un, ungendered in that sense. That's really interesting. I hadn't really thought about it. You're quite right that he is stripped of pretty much everything as Merlin. He is just a character and he just almost not, but he, he's a bit more than just like a story creation because he does have a role in moving it forward. And in so many later interpretations, we were talking earlier about the Bernard Cornwall ones, he becomes a fully rounded character. But you're quite right. There, He is so different to the men within the, the story itself. Right. And, and he's, he's often older and wiser and, and, you know, age is another way that, that power can be uh, represented, but he, he just, he gets to exist on that completely other level. And I think if you look at um, women who wield magic, not so much in the, um, in the Arthurian legend, although the lady of the lake oftentimes isn't even human, right? She's sort of a a creature from Fae in in a sense. Um, They're not comparable to, uh, to sort of quote unquote real women um, or their gender isn't held to the same uh, standards. Merlin's always been kind of othered. And I I suppose that you can see that in his, um, you know, the story that says that he is the son. So he's half demon. He's a son of a demon. Um, So I wonder if that's, you know, that it's their way of expressing this otherness by choosing something that is deliberately not human um, so people can't, you can't gender a demon, like 
it's so other. Um, I mean, it has a negative connotation, but I don't think they always do. I think I feel like in this regard, it's very often more just that he is he is otherworldly, supernatural. He only has one foot in this world, and the other one is somewhere else. Right, and, and I think that is a, a way to answer the, the the tricky question: Where does he get his power from? Um, and of course, you have to make magic a little evil if you're going to fit within the sort of Christian telling of the of the stories. You can't have magic um, be too uh, prominent or too good. Um, so Merlin gets that aspersion cast on him. Interestingly, though, the, you know the story of of his origin is often highly gendered. His mother is sometimes presented as a nun. Um, who uh, was a very um, pious virgin, and she was seduced by an incubus. Um, so the demon comes down and, um, and, and, and seduces her more or less against her will or in a dream or in a way that she doesn't think that he's really a man. Um, and it's sort of a religious experience. Um, there's a hell of a lot going on in that. And we're back again to this idea of it all comes down to how you're conceived, whether it was faithful, unfaithful, illegitimate, whatever. It was really interesting what you said about Christianity as well, because that was another thing that I found. When I read up mostly on this, I focused a lot on grail law because I was fascinated by that in my my early years. And there was always this contradiction between Christianity and magic because you cut, they, it was almost like they wanted the best of both worlds. They wanted to have the Christian aspect and God and go after the grail, but they also wanted these characters who were magical, who like you say, it were a little otherworldly. And I think that's why you get so many interpretations of Merlin and Morgan and all the others, because it's a case of, in some instances, they want to make them very definitely male and bad or very definitely female and bad. And then sometimes they just can't decide and they're just going, they are completely other. Um, when we're just going to have that and it's just the way it is. And I always thought that the, the how they, Merlin and his the others were portrayed really depended on how much Christianity there was within the text. Yes, and you can watch the Christianity be layered onto it. Um, you know, you can go back to um, Chrétien and then and then look at that his his writings on Arthur as opposed to Wolfram von Eschenbach, and you can just see this like thicker and thicker veneer of of Christianity be imposed on what were almost inarguably pagan stories or uh, elements of folklore that wouldn't have have had any Christianity in them at all. Absolutely. And I mean, I love the well maidens. They were always my favourite. If you read the very early sort of grail law, you have the grail being not the last cup that Christ used or the one that caught his bride, but a cauldron or a cup or associated with the Fisher King and all these different things. And you kind of watch it merge over the centuries and see how it all changes and how some people go, no, it must be the cup of Christ. Where other people going, well, no, actually it's all about the wells and the maidens and the spring and fertility. And oh, it just, it goes round and round in circles sometimes. It does. And I, I tried to give a little nod to that in silence. I had some fun with it. Um, he's he's raised um, in this sort of country house to keep him away from prying eyes. And he gets to a spring at one time. And the one of the stories that uh, o, o, the man who's raising him tells is about the, you know, the, the lady of the spring and how she'll be a fairy and you have to pour out a libation to her. And the woman who's raising him is like, oh, no, 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 I'm pretty sure it's a saint that guards this spring. And they kind of go back and forth about which one it is, because that's such an element in, in the stories. Um, can you be pious and Christian and um, and still have these dealings with magic it's just another one of the inherent um 
this constant struggle between two extremes that seem to characterize this entire genre, like between virtue and vice, between faith and magic, um, between kind of chivalry and um, extreme violence of war. I'm kind of leading up to talking about whether we can find any feminist messages um, in chivalric romance and is it a, a genre that we can still work in to today to kind of discuss much more modern issues of gender identity? I, I hope so. I think there's there's certainly tales that are utterly lost causes <laughs> that I wouldn't try to. Um, and I, I do think, to be honest, that the story of silence or the original story of silence um, is one that basically shows that within the chivalric mode, the only way for a woman to be good is to be a man. Um, and then, of course, ultimately to give that up at the drop of the hat to be a, a pure and virtuous wife and queen. So I think it very much plays into um, the heteronormativity and the binary and misogyny and all of that. Um, but I do think there's room within it and in, in, in trying to expand it and retell it to, to suggest um, they just, you know, they're taking a, a round peg and forcing it into a square hole. You know, they're trying to tell the story about silence and make him something that he's not. Um, so that was the story I was interested in. And, and there's other stories out there. You know, um, there's he's Silence's story is probably based on, here's another name that I'll butcher, uh, Grisendel or Grisandela, um, and who has a similar uh, sort of disguise as Silence does. And, and later stories feature a number of women warriors. And I would call them women warriors because everyone knows that they're women who dress as knights um, and, and put on armor and go out and fight. Um, and, and they present, again, a different way of, of being a woman. So I think there are stories that are worth exploring, although an awful lot of them um, are so deeply anti-woman um, that I, I, you'd have to really struggle to find uh, something uh, non-binary in there. Can I ask about swords? <laughs> Just you. <laughs> well, earlier, Alex, you mentioned that, you know, Merlin doesn't have a sword. So he's kind of taken that masculine aspect is taken away from him because he doesn't have a sword. And then, of course, when you have Arthur, there is Excalibur, which I'd also like to point out there's several starships named Excalibur in the Star Trek universe. Lucy, never say that I can't bring Star Trek into an episode ever again. This is what you get. <laughs> um, but is, you know, because Excalibur is this kind of epic sword, it is the sword of swords, is this kind of the ultimate token of masculinity or is it, you know, the ultimate my penis is bigger than your penis kind of thing. Um, I mean, <laughs> what what do swords have to say about masculinity in this genre? Yeah, masculinity and, and nobility. Um, you'll, you'll see um, that opponents to knights sometimes are wild men and have clubs, right? And that is um, also a, a phallic symbol perhaps, but it's not the uh, refined weapon of, of a knight um, or an axe or you know, 
the, the, the lower classes use a bow and arrow and all of the weapons that might be deployed um, against um, a sword have sort of a different status. But yes, the sword is sort of the, the zenith. And, and Merlin usually doesn't have a wand or a, a rod or the other implements um, that might take the magical place of a sword. Um, you know, it's, uh, but he, he, and I, and again, I would say he's, he's not neuter in any way, but he, he measures his masculinity on a different scale. And I think um, doesn't have any need for a sword and would, it would look quite, quite odd if he were given one, he wouldn't, he wouldn't know what to do with it. He just doesn't need it. So is there a different representation of masculinity with Merlin? Like, is he still perceived as a valid and, um, well, earlier you mentioned that women couldn't really be considered good in the sense of what it is, what it was thought of to be good in that um, time. You know, is Merlin, does he manage to still be good without having the kind of traditional masculine traits that others other knights or or characters may have had i think merlin displays by different rules i think he um he answers to a different um calling um he he is a prophet um and he he therefore has an obligation to speak the truth even when the truth is unpopular um and he does things that no normal human and no normal man would do. Um, and he does things that are, again, wrong in the service of being right. You know, he takes the infant Arthur away um, and, and, and sort of abducts him in, in a sense um, and, and doesn't play by the rules. So, but I don't think he's being measured on the same scale that um, kings and queens are being measured on. I, I do think he gets uh, to play an entirely different game. Some knights that we hear in the stories, for example, Tristan, they're, they're harpers and poets as well as warriors. I mean, do you think that some of the issues of, say, toxic masculinity that we tend to see perpetuated in modern narratives are lesser in these chivalric romances or is it just a different kind of, of pressure on men and masculinity? I think the, the, the harper, the storyteller, the minstrel um, plays a, a, a counterpoint to the knight. So these are men who aren't going and fighting, but are staying um, in a castle um, and who are sort of lesser on that scale of nobility and, and masculinity. Um, yet they often play a huge part in courtly intrigue and in the romance part of things. You know, they're, they're supposed to kindle the flames of love, but not actually get involved um, with these women. Um, so I, I think that when you combine that with a knight uh, and you have a knight who is also a storyteller or a knight who also likes to sing, that is a little bit of a, of a softening or showing a, you know, what we might think of as a sort of a domestic side um, to the, to the masculinity. But I don't think there's, there's much of a way of getting around um, the toxicity of, um, of masculinity in these stories. I think that's pretty uh, baked in. Is that something that you perhaps tackled um, in your book? Yeah, I, 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 I tried to. Um, and, and I think 
silence grows up idealizing knights. You know, he has these stories, he has people kind of around him. Um, he thinks this is what he wants to do and he does it and he's, and he keeps looking around and being like, well, okay, I'm, I'm being a really good knight. And then he's like, but there's all these other knights and oh boy, they are not honest. They are not virtuous. <laughs> they are not kind. Um, why, how come they're not holding themselves to this standard? And I think he, he, I'm trying to point out that, um, you can't just say I'm a, I'm a man, therefore I'm good. Right. Which is in a sense, how I read a lot of medieval masculinity to be um, more masculine is to be more better. Um, and uh, he's silence kind of questions that. And, and that leads to him wondering whether he actually wants to be a knight and whether being a knight is a worthwhile pursuit. Is there another way to be a good person? Thank you so much, Alex, for coming along and talking to us tonight about chivalric romance. Thank you. It has been an utter pleasure. And the story of silence is out now from Harper Voyager in hardback and ebook and audio. So get thee to a newly opened bookstore. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.